This is Counterculture with Marie Busky. Wednesdays at 10 a.m. on Reality Chick Radio. Good morning and welcome back to Counterculture here with Marie on Reality Check Radio. Media Matters is the name of the game and Marty is my partner in crime as always each week. Good morning, Marty. How are you? Good morning, Marie. I'm good, thanks. Good morning, everybody. Yeah, good. Let's go. And I know, let's go. And we both did the thing on Sunday morning. <laughs> and by what, the what, thing is we did... watched the sports ball final. I, I said to my wife, I'll, I'll phone my dad about 10 minutes before the end and then pretend I didn't even know it was on. And she was like, yeah, do it, do it. You know, I'll, I'll tape it. And I was like, he's not going to find that funny. <laughs> oh, wow. I've only watched two games the entire Rugby World Cup, which for me is unusual. I've always been somebody that has really followed the World Cup. I used to love watching lots of pool games and smaller teams and and I loved all the other competition uh, traditionally, I would have been all over the things like the Australians getting knocked out and the Argentinians doing so well and all that kind of stuff. But I just didn't get there. But I thought, no, I am going to watch the final. Mm. Well, it was convenient too, wasn't it? You didn't have to get up at two. That would have that would have that been a, a major help. headwind for you. And helpful, me. helpful. And I uh, had the coffee, had the knitting. Uh, I have to say it was not conducive to relaxing knitting time. <laughs> well, you know, Rugby is like a zoo that you can go to see masculinity and patriotism. It's like an endangered animal that's uh, not in the wild anymore. Mm. That colours my ability to immerse myself in it. And when you've got the zookeepers in charge, which they were. <laughs> you love a good animal. You can't help yourself, can you? <laughs> I know, I can't. I can't. i tell you what I thought. When I was watching the end of it, and I was watching Sam Kane on the on the sideline after he got red card and I was watching uh, Cheston Colby, the South African winger, just did his impression of a turtle and just stuck his head down in his jumper. I thought, man, that's a hell of a lot for men to have to wear. Sort of the flip side of my observation that there's no political mileage to be held in holding women accountable for their actions. <laughs> they really are. And I found myself, as I was watching him say, um, at the time I wasn't even aware, it caught me off guard that he stepped back. But we've we've been here for two months now and anything around the head is ramifications. Kane said, I'm not here to discuss whether it was right or wrong decision. It can't be changed. Unfortunately, it's something I'm going to have to live with forever. And I was watching that and I was thinking, man, that's ownership. And it's it's unfortunate, you know, that because it's easy enough to do that sort of thing. Mm. And I was just sort of sitting there thinking, you know, I wish Christopher Hipkins' lost speech had been more like that. If Sam Kane had have given Christopher Hipkins' speech, it would have been, we actually won. And, you know, the wind was just blowing against us. And, and yeah, that's that's what did it. And if we had have seen Christopher Hipkins, you know, say, oh, you know, I began my political career when I was still in the messianic phase of youth and just sort of, you know, and this was encouraged by older politicians who'd been through the same process and were absolutely committed to a socialist revolution, ignoring history that tells us it only ends in imprisonment, rape, torture and starvation, labour camps and the death of millions. Jacinda and I thought we were totally right and virtuous and thought that through that simplistic logic of youth, we believed anyone who opposed us was evil. We didn't have the experience or competence to run a country and were so easily made into puppets by people like Klaus Schwab and investment and banking interests. 
you know, that, that's the kind of, I would have felt a lot better about his resignation. Speak of if he had have had 10% of the ownership that Sam mm. Kane, the consequences of Sam Kane's era is disappointment. The consequences of the Ginger Jabbers decisions that he made, that it was too hard to PR the leaving kids out as he was advised of the vaccination, has been death. It's been disability. It's mm. been kids who need heart transplants. So, yeah, that that's why I find it, if I'm getting into rugby, I almost think they're just trying to distract you. One of the things with the loss, and I think that, that's exactly it, it teaches disappointment. And I think Kane saying what he did, bravo, you know, because he did own it. There'll be a lot of young New Zealanders that would have been watching that devastated, you know, particularly in that tweeny age and stage. But to see that and to see somebody standing up, owning it, feeling it, allowing them to feel the disappointment and, you know, where they go moving forward, I think is a good thing. This is real life and sometimes people lose. News well, I mean, that's, that's what, I mean, I love taking my kids to jujitsu. They lose a lot. Mm. You know, that's just the nature of the sport. But, you know, you can sort of see them. I saw my son, who's eight, you know, cop an elbow in the face and I just sort of was filled with pride just seeing this, he sort of blinked and there was just this acceptance, just sort of <laughs> chokes the poor me out of them. You and I have been texting a little bit getting into the show and it's funny because what you've, we've just talked about now brings us back to something that I said to you. I said, oh, you know, it's something that you brought up and I, way back, oh gosh, it was right towards the beginning. It was one of the earlier Media Matters shows and I can't even remember what we were talking about, but you brought up the theory from... Thomas Sowell, which I've got a funny feeling he wrote in a book in 1980, so it's been around for a long time. Yeah. And Thomas Sowell is, if you do not know who Thomas Sowell is, and it's S-O-W-E-L-L, he is an American economist. He is probably one of the greatest thinkers, contemporary thinkers of the American age. He's now, I think, at the Hoover Institution. He's in his 90s, and he's still writing. I mean, the man is prolific. Mm. And he wrote a theory called the constrained versus the unconstrained. It's something that you brought up way back then. And then, of course, it popped up this week because of all these events that have been happening in the last week or two, I just thought it was really important to bring that back up again in light of what's been going on. So do you it's want to explain? It's becoming a lot clearer now, isn't it? It has become you, a you, lot, you're lot clearer. You're starting to see some genuine unhinging. Yeah, and so, I think a lot of people who are kind of, I guess, on our side of the fence in terms of, hey, we've got to question things and we've got to debate them, are starting to realise, hey, you, you, you know, we could debate all we want. We could bring all the logic to the table. What we're dealing with now are people who are dealing with that mass formation psychosis. We're not dealing with people who are in their right mind in many mm. ways. And I, f I found that when I went back to Gisborne, I was astonished at how disconnected people were from what's going on. They're, oh, I'm glad that's behind us. Someone called me a conspiracy theorist. And I said, well, what conspiracies have I theorized about? I try really hard to stick to data because you don't need theories. It's right there. You can go to the web pages and, and read what they want to do. I'll just run through a brief description of what these two visions are, just to give you a bit of context. So the the unconstrained vision is 
a belief that human nature is essentially good. Those with the unconstrained vision distrust decentralized processes and they're impatient with large institutions and systematic processes that constrain human action. They believe there's an ideal solution to every problem and that compromise is never acceptable. Collateral damage is merely the price of moving forward on the road to perfection. Progressivism. Soul often refers to them as the self-anointed. Ultimately, they believe that man is morally perfectible. Because of this, they believe there exists some people who are further along the path of moral development, have overcome self-interest, and are immune to the influence of power, and therefore can act as a surrogate decision-makers for the rest of society. If it's ringing some bells for you people, there is a reason why. The constrained vision, on the other hand, Sol argues that the constrained vision relies heavily on the belief that human nature is essentially unchanging and that man is naturally inherently self-interested regardless of the best intentions. Those with a constrained vision prefer the systematic process of the rule of law and experience of tradition. Compromise is essential because there is no ideal solutions only trade-offs. Those with a constrained vision favour empirical evidence and time-tested structures and processes over intervention and personal experience. Ultimately, the constrained vision demands checks and balances and refuses to accept that all people can put aside their innate self-interest. And I guess you could tie in with that the unconstrained vision hates the idea of logos of external objective morality. They go very heavily in the direction of Alistair Crowley's do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. Mm, absolutely. Uh, and what I love about this is that he wrote this so long ago, but also too is that this breaks down the left-right political paradigm, which I don't know about you, I feel has become more and more irrelevant as time yeah. has gone on. The well, media let, try to clutch onto it, but it's really not holding the relevance that it used to. Yeah, there's there's the less freedom, more government side, which the media is very heavily on, and there's the more freedom, less government side. Mm. And, and, and with that, I use my assumption that governments love anything that makes people demand less freedom and more government. And I find that's a very good lens to view what the government does because it explains why problems never get solved. Yeah, and like Marty says, when you says more freedom, so you're thinking, oh, that's unconstrained. No, it's the absolute opposite. That's actually, more, that is the more constrained point of view. So what I did do is I just grabbed the weekend papers and I had a little hot up of our usual suspects. So I avoided all the Rugby World Cup stuff because of which there was a ton and lots of really fluffy I mean, they were obviously grasping for stories. It was the media marching on the spot, basically. <laughs> oh, it pretty much was. It was like, you know, how can we make a white wall interesting yeah. type stuff? Uh, so there was lots of that. So I went to our uh, all the usual suspects across the key papers, and I broke down either the opinion pieces or articles into two groups. What came with an, an unconstrained mindset, which is essentially the mindset of perfection, but the distrust of a decentralised process, so in other words, more government, you know, like to have more control, and what was the unconstrained mindset in terms of where we're at, because there was a lot of what is going to happen at the end of the week, crystal ball gazing. On the unconstrained side of the things, and I mean, this is only a very short list because there were a whole heap, 
Shane Depoe, Mike Munro, Thomas Coughlin, Miriam Bell, Virginia Fallon, Paula Penfold, Luke Melpis, uh, in the post there were a few, oh, Claire Trevitt, Fran O'Sullivan, well, I mean, she was obviously bored, uh, and we knew Darth Vance must have been having a really dull day because she was having to talk about something totally irrelevant in, in Wellington politics because that was about all she could muster. I thought Darth Vance was getting ready for the new government. You know, suddenly concerned about unrestrained spending and opaque processes within central government and her coquettish little softened fringes back with a little little smile on the corner of her mouth. The Darth, the Darth Vance has, mm. has softened herself again. She's toying with it again. Toying with it. Toying with it. In terms of Vance with transparency, the other person that actually spoke about transparency, and this was the only article I found on the constrained side of the fence, was Bruce Cottrell. So I had two articles that showed absolute polar opposites on this vision. One was Bruce Cottrell in terms of the constraint. The other, also in the same newspaper... Was the and it was, tsunami oleaginous. And it was jarring in the juxtaposition because they literally were over the page from each other. Yeah. was Mike Munro. Yeah, he's an apparent chick, Mike Munro. Mike Runro, former Chief of Staff of Jacinda Ardern and was Chief Press Secretary for Helen Clark. That should tell you everything. Yeah. However, full credit to Labour team, they deserve it. Outgoing government not leaving the big mess that some critics might claim, says Mike. Really, Mike? Let's start with the economy. The Herald headline this a week ago asked, is Christopher Luxon about to get lucky with a soft economic landing? After a horror run, the talk is now of the economy having turned a corner. Growth is returning and there is no recession. Cost of living pressures might be easing and wages are expected to outpace inflation. Mm. Okay, Mike. Obviously, you know, soupy yeah. going Give under me 100 billion dollars, Mike. And I'll achieve all sorts of things you can fill a column with. Yeah. It, singing the praises of Grant Robertson, after a horror run, the talk now of the economy having turned a corner. Yeah, as you said, this is a testament to the abilities of Grant Robertson, who managed the public purse as billions were spent supporting New Zealanders through COVID-19. The country was buffeted by a global slowdown and then the need to fund recovery from the January floods and Cyclone Gabrielle caused further financial stress. So just still having that thing where, you know, supported New Zealanders through COVID-19 rather than supported New Zealanders through the decisions they made around COVID-19. COVID-19 was a possum crossing the road. The COVID response was driving off a cliff to avoid hitting it and into a river of yeah. death. I loved it when he said, but there are signs that nationally coordinated approach designed to move beyond the DHB era postcode lottery that meant the quality of care was affected by where the patient lived is beginning to bear fruit. This is talking about um, Te Whara Ora. Waiting times for non-orthopaedic surgery are now being brought under control, and most notably thousands of more cataract surgeries are being delivered because of a new nationally consistent access threshold. Meanwhile... Across in the Herald on Sunday, half of cardiac surgeries overdue by Nicholas Jones. One in two New Zealanders needing heart surgery waited longer than the maximum time frame considered appropriate by these specialists. One in three patients are waiting far too long. In Wellington, one in three, Christchurch half, Auckland half, Dunedin 60%, and Waikato Hospital, a whopping 69% of patients were overdue for cardiac surgery in the time frame that their consultants wanted them to have it. 
I wonder if that's got anything to do with the information leaked out of the Wellington DHB that uh, cardiac events are up 80-something percent. Oh, yes, to get them having good numbers. I do not know. But here Probably he long is, COVID. Yeah, so here he is citing orthopaedic and, and cataract. Well, that's all well and good, but orthopaedic and cataract, I mean, are nowhere near as life-threatening as cardiac, just saying, Mike. Anyhow, okay. Mm. And he then goes on to talk about the nurses. He goes on to talk about all the money in terms of restructuring. Again, a lot of this is about spending and promises and not delivery and outcome. Yeah, centralisation. Yeah. Meanwhile, across at Bruce Cottrell, Bruce says real transparency starts right at the beginning. Publishing the coalition agreement for everyone to see would be a great first step for the new government. So this was actually an idea mooted by David Seymour, if I'm not wrong, about those agreements. And I just love this. I've been trying to recall our perception of government before 2017. While we're all having differing political views, we probably tended to think of governments as fair and more importantly representative of the people who put them there. Sure, not everything was out in the open. It never is. But whether it was Key, Clark or those before them, we found our views were being well representative. When former Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern and her Labour Party-led coalition came into power in 2017, she promised the most transparent government ever. Whether she knew it or not, she was implying that governments before her had been less transparent. I believe it now part of our history and her government and that of her successor were the least transparent of our lifetimes. Yeah. And people kind of assume, you know, this is getting back to the post-match rugby speech. People assume that she's gone away and gone, oh, I'm, I, I really messed up there. I failed in what I wanted to do. What she actually appears to be doing is thinking, I failed because the evildoers were saying mean things. So I'm going to go to Harvard and work on shutting them down. Because how could you address climate change if people don't believe in it? And it's working. It is working. The Ardern Hipkins government failed New Zealanders on a number of fronts, but the complete disdain for transparency and the impact of that on the country's people is probably one of their greatest failures. Well, again, probably not accidental. I mean, no. if they had said, look, you know, we've got no commercial experience whatsoever, and we've got a very simplistic way of seeing the world where we're good and anyone who opposes us is necessarily evil. And actually, most of our policies come from the UN and the WHO and the World Economic Forum. If they had been transparent like that, it's probably a bit like, mm. you know, if they had said, hey, we've got to give you some mandatory gene therapy, probably people wouldn't have gone for it. So is he alluding at that with this next passage? Along with her co-conspirators, Robertson, Hipkins, Parker and Mahuta, Ardern presided over the government that chose not to be completely open and honest. In fact, they misled us and manipulated the media in the process while they conceived, crafted and delivered policies that in some cases bore no resemblance to what they campaigned on. Furthermore, they set out on a pathway to racially divide and re-engineer us societally, while core services such as schools, hospitals, roads, police, and even the judiciary failed us. Yeah, and I mean, you could add all sorts of things to that. The medical council failed us. Yeah. You know, there's that old adage, and this sort of falls back into Thomas Sowell's constrained, unconstrained idea. There's that adage that... Uh, People on the left think that people on the right are evil and people on the right think that people on the left are stupid. I think what we're starting to see, and it's well overdue, is we've got to sort of 
basically move further left in the sense that we've got to start understanding that these people are evil. Mm. They are stupid, but ultimately their aims and the means that they're prepared to use are evil. Well, and that comes back to human nature is essentially unchanging. And and that's what concerns me is the level of censorship now is shutting down a whole bunch of these conversations, right? Oh, yeah. I looked up something about Kate Hanna. I, I wanted to find that quote about her saying that her attitude to life and her own identity was, was informed by Marxism. You can't find it. All you can find is a whole series of her articles and things lauding her and basically bewailing that she's been victimised by people saying mean things. Yeah. It's the, gone. It will be probably on page 20 is where it'll be. Yeah because that's where they tend to hide these things. That whole aspect of human nature and what concerns me is with the level of censorship now and the inability for that town square, that the open discussions to be had, which many times we've said is the, the nexus for this radio yep, station to be created. Thing. This is where it leads. It leads to this level of control and then the convincing of people that this is not aberrant behaviour. This, in fact, is perfectly normal and more than perfectly normal. It is perfectly acceptable. So therefore, it's okay to sit around and rot away in your bed and and that is okay. And to the point again, there was another, there was an article by Virginia Fallon, uh, cancelling culture, the art and etiquette of bailing. The Sunday Star Times, you look at this and you think, oh, this is just a little fluffy, just a little fluffy lifestyle article. That's and it, yeah, and it is, for all intents and purposes. I mean, they were obviously, you know, because they're waiting for the final results and, you know, the sports ball was on, you've got to fill these column inches somehow, right? It's a hungry beast of paper. Yeah, exactly. It is a thirsty beast. So this article is re- talking about the whole social concept of making plans but then breaking them. Now, you and I are of an age where – if you went and set plans, especially when we were younger, I mean, texting was still not the norm. It was you picked the phone up and you spoke to your mate, or you were at work actually. And you in went person. and caught your horse. Yeah, <laughs> shut up. And you went and you were working with your friends, and you actually had a cohesive social network, but it, it communicated and it spoke to each other. And if you set plans, uh, you tended to stick to them because if those plans were to change, you couldn't easily reach out to that person to change those plans, right? And there's an etiquette there. If you set a commitment with somebody, and I'm not talking like a, something big like a wedding that requires an RSVP, and they talk about this in the article, but just even simple things like yeah. let's meet for downtown for a drink after work. or it was hey, less flaking. Totally less flaking mm. because you respected the commitment and the time of the other person that you were dealing with. Even if you really didn't feel like it, you would often still go because you had made the commitment. Oh, no, 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 no. I mean, the unconstrained world that we live in these days, flaking is the du jour thing to do. And there is an etiquette expert that they contacted, Susie Wilson. And I loved what she said here. Yes, she admits she absolutely has a foot firmly in the protocol of the world gone by. But etiquette is really just another word for good old fashioned manners. Flaking on people is rude, particularly if there's no reason. It's undesirable and stressful for the person you're doing it to. And it shows that that person does doesn't matter. And it then sort of talks about just the easiness and willingness that this current generation have just to literally just blow people off. And I read this and I thought, gosh, this just explains to me 
when dear leader says, this is what you're going to do and I'm going to force you to do it, they just went, oh, okay. Yeah. I think uh, there's something about Generation X that's not examined uh, enough that I think in years to come will be more obvious is we had access to and got our asses kicked by grandparents who'd survived the Depression and fought in the Second World War. Uh, I've got a brother who's 10 years younger than me, and uh, he he didn't. He My, my grandfather was getting a bit doddery by the time he was a young man who uh, needed to be shaped. But um, that that's a difference between us. Uh, I used to get picked up on a Saturday and taken up to the farm where I'd split wood, build fences, dag sheep, drench, shoot the 22, and so on. He let me drive the car out of when I was 12 or something, very irresponsible. And my brother said to me one day, so he just used to pick you up and, and you used to go and work, didn't you? And I said, yeah. And he said, how much did you get paid? I said, oh, he used to give me, I guess, 10 bucks now and then. And he said, well, what did that work out to an hour? I said, look, and... Until you asked me just now, I never even thought of it. I thought it was a great deal. You talked to me about the Second World War, talked to me about growing up in a tent in the Wawaka Gorge and making money reading Māori, uh, their mail, because he could speak Māori and, you know, hearing their stories about being able to cross the, the river by just stepping on bodies and keeping your feet dry. I thought it was a good deal. I really wanted competence. And so that where that last link with that generation and, and that I think informs a lot of our values and mm-hmm. uh, after us, they're not there so much. Yeah, well, we've been able to receive firsthand accounts of genuine hardship. Yeah, the depression. I, I had a job that he gave me to do once, um, pulling nails out of boards and straighten them up because he used to have to pack them in on a horse and it took, three days as a consequence and and very reluctant to waste things. Yeah, and also in time. Time is a funny old thing, you know, like when time in itself is something that's valuable, how important that is, and you need to make that time profitable, whether that be monetarily profitable or socially profitable or profitable in regards to uh, relationships and building families and communities. To actually waste somebody's time, I have to admit, is something that I get quite angry about. And I'm the first to admit, with the hours that I work, I'm quite happy. If I get to a, a weekend or a time and I'm thinking, oh, I don't have to do anything tonight. I can just sit and have a quiet glass of Chardonnay, do some knitting and watch some trashy television. Oh, my gosh, that's such a treat. But that's not all the time. You know, like, I, I appreciate mm. that. The, the, this is becoming the norm for this this whole generation. And there was a psychologist they interviewed, Dougal Sutherland, clinical psychologist, who said New Zealanders aren't the most assertive people. It's just easier to let things drop and avoid the awkwardness. Isn't that a sad indictment on the generation currently? I organise playdates sometimes with my kids' friends who are a lot younger than me, and uh, one of them in particular. I've said, you know, it's, it's interesting doing this with you because it gives me an idea of what it's like to date in the modern world, just getting flaked and ghosted and you not answering texts and stuff like that. Yeah. You know, I can kind of get an idea about what it's like. Well, it, indeed. And you know she what? She laughs about it, but I think she was well, a little bit embarrassed. Because your kids are just a bit younger than mine. 
one of the things I've really fostered with my kids is a really they've got a really wonderful strong social group. So both boys, there's a huge because they're so close together in age. These are huge crossover. One of the things I have always maintained, and I talked to Daniel Principe about this several weeks ago, is I've always maintained an open house policy because I want these kids to be able to get together and meet in person. Because at the moment, one of the few places that they do it is at school. And then they all go on to Discord or Snapchat or wherever it is that the talk of tick, wherever it is that they like to hang out. But nothing beats that in-person contact. So when with these kids, they have get-togethers. I'm really fortunate. There's a handful within the parent sphere of these kids that have a similar mindset to us. Mm. So there are a number of families that we end up hosting these parties as the kids call them up. They're just the kids hanging out essentially. But they all come together. So they, they're together, they they shoot the shit, they do what they need to do to create that social fabric, to create that social cohesion, to have that trust within each other, to create that mateship, which is so vital, to come up against challenges and experience risk as they navigate their teenage years. You're not going to do that bed rotting on your yeah. iPhone, are you? Well, it's amazing that they, um, they, I remember reading about a study where kids talk with less intonation in their voice. And I guess that's part of the whole mumble rap thing and is that sort of monotone that we're not used to having actual in-person conversations. I've been guilty of giving baby boomers some crap, I think, at one point when I was forcibly asked why I wasn't wearing a mask I pointed at the indignant baby boomer woman who was asking me and hissed, when I was young, we had better old people. (laughs) But, you know, in the Confucian uh, framework, old people were to be venerated because then it, it reduced people's fear of getting old and dying because as they got older, they got more venerated and also gave them the responsibility to ensure that they became wise. And so I think it's very, very dangerous. And I, you know, won't jump on board just that strain of leftist thought, which is, oh, I can't wait for you people to die because, you know, we've brainwashed your kids. I think that's incredibly um Well, when you, you know, going back to our grandparents' generation, you know, your grandparents, my grandparents, these were resourceful people. These were people that were used to living and making do without. They were warriors. They faced life and death through the wars. Then you have the baby boomers, of which your parents are and my parents are. They don't have that. I mean, they were raised under that, but they also, too, now they've become the fearful generation Mm. in covid totally exposed that for what it was. It's no surprise, though, that generation that was the first to worship youth would be terrified of death. Yeah, true. Yeah, And, you know, I mean, we have, that's why it's so good to have relationships between grandparents and uh, grandchildren. It it does provide something of a stability because we do fishtail down the generations overcorrection after overcorrection. You know, like a lot of baby boomers, my parents were workaholics and I was a latchkey child and I cooked dinner when I got home from school with my brother and sister. Mm. Interesting listening to John Banks on Leighton Smith podcast a couple of weeks back, and he was really, you know, saying he just didn't feel valued. And I, I know a lot of, you know, a lot of those older people now are very capable, and, and there is a move just to, oh, it's old-fashioned, or, yeah, we don't need those attitudes anymore. And that, that's what Maoism did 
it replaced veneration of the older relatives with veneration of the party and indeed encouraged young people to report older people who weren't thinking right to the uh, relevant authorities. There's part of this whole, you know, when the masks went on, the masks came off. You know, before all this, we could pretend, and it was easy to pretend with all the the virtue signaling that was going on, that people were actually becoming more moral. You know, everyone could pretend that they'd have Anne Frank in their attic. But, you know, now we know for sure that the vast majority of people would be far more likely to be kicking in a door and even more likely to be calling the Gestapo to report a family that wasn't doing what the state demanded. Yeah, absolutely. Now, where do you want to hear to next? There's a bit of conjecture about what's going to happen with... um, a harder line policy on crime. And and that's been, I think, was probably the ultimate failure that did labour and that idea, oh, we'll just empty the prisons and, you know, the people are just there for injustice. As Theodore Dalrymple said, it's a common misconception on the left that if there were more justice in the world, there'd be fewer people in prison. And not only that, the ones that remain do not do right by them. You know, we, we talked about that last week, didn't we? we did. Just the appalling lack of rehabilitative services. Court services in prison. And and so, yeah, Jared Gilbert wrote that, saying the Ardern government truly drove the reform agenda and, left, and the left shifted the needle away from lock-em-up approaches. The public seemed to accept the argument that prisons were not a great solution to crime, but the Labour government didn't make it clear what the replacement was. Without a clear alternative, the reform agenda was never going to last. And I read the whole article thinking he's going to tell us what the clear alternative was, but he he never quite got around to that. And it's interesting, it's just come out that El Salvador's president, Bukele, has jailed 64,000 gang members and crimes dropped, murder rate has dropped to zero, which uh, rather illustrates that. Theodore Dalrymple quote, doesn't it? And provided there is an accompanying urgent focus on literacy and numeracy, I think, uh, yeah, some people do need to be in jail and they need to be getting uh, drug and alcohol treatment and they need to be getting anger management treatment. I would love to see, particularly if they're in there for sentences, say for argument's sake, more than three years. Uh, So there's a sentence that's a multiple of years, not multiple of months. That not only that, that they have an assessment done in terms of their cognitive ability educationally and where those deficits are, that schools, high schools are set up in prisons. These uh, men and women who, because you'll probably find a direct link between their educational deficiencies and their offending, that, I mean, we've got Takura. It's a great correspondence school, so it's the former correspondence school of New Zealand. And I would be setting up a Takura, and I'm, I'm sure they probably do that, but have those fallen by the wayside. I'd be having units set up and getting these kids getting their assessment standards and not filling them with all this woke rubbish either. Yeah. No, not. You know what I'd be doing? I'd be having a, uh, a lot of New Zealand solid waste stream being deposited into the prisons and emerging absolutely sorted and pristine and ready to be meaningfully recycled rather than just sent to landfill. I would have work gangs cleaning up the forestry slash, chipping it, turning it into compost. Yeah, or taking it into compost or putting it into the paper industry. Doing something useful, Mm. doing something productive. And the other thing is you really need to have it as, as something that people buy into. So you say, well, look, you've got the opportunity to do this. If you put your hand up for it, you've got to be committed. 
And if you don't, carry on. And I think the idea of uh, non-gang prisons is is well overdue as well. Mm. As I said, if you're going to crack down on gangs, the most important thing to crack down on is anyone who intimidates someone who leaves a gang. And I have heard some remarks to that effect from Christopher Luxon, which were heartening. But then Mark Mitchell got himself into uh, a bit of strife, actually. That was the other thing that cropped up in the papers, was around his comments and thoughts in terms of banning gang patches. And then, therefore, the argument was, is, oh, well, what happens with those that are wearing their insignia on their cheeks and their foreheads and on their bodies? What are you going to do with those? And he said, I think, had a throwaway line of, oh, they can cover it up with foundation. Now, mm. this is where I diverge completely from the national policy around gangs. And in fact, I think the seven-point policy you and I covered when they put it out several months back, and I pretty much disagreed with most of it. I don't disagree with the fact that there needs to be a more hard line taken with them as organised criminal enterprises. But censoring things like their gang patches, for me, is a very, very slippery slope. Yeah. A very slippery slope. Especially when you've got a reality check radio uh, shirt on and you know that of the two gangs, uh, the government's far more concerned about you. Exactly. The other exactly. thing in addition to, you know, to really cracking down hard, cracking down hard uh, on anyone who intimidates someone for leaving a gang is I think just have to uh, make it an urgent priority to eliminate prospecting. It's mm. so, like you go into your clubhouse, do all the woofing you want, do all the yozer and, you know, all of that stuff, but you're not going to corrupt kids. You're not going to get kids to bring their underage girlfriends into your gang pad, slip them some pee, and then have at them, and then intimidate them into being quiet. And, you know, we got all upset about, quite rightly, the Roastbusters outrage. That outrage happens in every city in New Zealand in gang pads every week. And we don't talk about it because it, it, it doesn't affect people who are outside those communities, but it's uh, it, it urgently needs to be taken seriously. Yeah, indeed, indeed. The other thing I saw, which was Emerson's cartoon, which is, is very much like the one where David Seymour was being chased by blowflies wearing tinfoil hats, marked conspiracy theory. So essentializing anyone who goes against the grain as being a blowfly. In this week's cartoon, we're represented as pigeons being fed mm. by... Winston Peters. An elderly-looking Winston Peters. That's disgusting. Yeah, I saw that too. I showed it to Mr. Marie and I was just like, really? Yeah. yeah really? We're pigeons it, now, are we? Yeah. yeah. I, I think New Zealand's media is about where the Soviet Union was in 1989 when it surprised everyone by collapsing. I think they're... I mean, you know, we've got MediaWorks trading insolvent at the moment, what owing something like it's $64 million in debt or something like that. I think I think they're likely to collapse. And I've said to the overladies, we should put in for some New Zealand on air funding. We should be seeing if we can fill that time slot left vacant by the project, you know, if even if it's just half an hour. I mean, we mm. or even on TV one, you know, we pay for for that, we should get some representation on it. As I said, we don't need conspiracy theories. We just deal in data. Yeah, yeah. From we deal in the in government. the constrained facts. Yeah. Mm. yeah. The other let's, let's work was, on that, Marie. Where we should. And speaking of constrained facts, I watched Jack Tame interview Lord Jonathan Sumption. If you don't know Lord Jonathan Sumption, he is. He's, just, he's many things, but he's a former Supreme Court judge in the United Kingdom. High, he's yep. a Lord. scholar, historian, 
And he really sort of shook things up in the United Kingdom because he came out very vocally against the COVID measures, particularly around lockdowns in the United Kingdom and was highly, highly critical of Boris Johnson and the other little twerp, Hancock, Matt Hancock, around their COVID measures. And he's gone on and then followed that up with the importance of an open and free press and freedom of speech. So he's out here at the moment as a guest of the Free Speech Union and Q&A, Jack Tame interviewed him on Saturday morning. Just had a face like a bulldog chewing a wasp, didn't he? Oh, I flicked it to you. I said, have you seen this? Now, firstly... Face like a drop pie. I think I said to you, I said, spot the moment when Jack looks like he swallowed swallowed a bumblebee. Yeah. (laughs) Face like a trampled mango. And... Full credit to Jack Tame is that he gave Lord Sumption the due respect that a man of his calibre deserved. He was well prepared. He had good questions. Wasn't especially happy about the answers he received, Mm. but he didn't interrupt him. He let him speak. So from a viewing perspective, it was a really interesting interview to watch. And he so clearly and calmly and eloquently stated his position in terms of the cruelty of lockdown. And as he said, the control of the population by the use of fear. Yeah. No, it was a, it was a great, and he's got some mana, old Lord Sumption. He's oh, he, he was a very dignified man, wasn't he? And uh, I think that's someone we all need to take a, a leaf from the book of. You know, I think we probably are closer, as I said, to to breaking through than we think, and we've just got to hold the line, push down the urge to be retributive or mm. uh, angry or say crazy things. Even though, I mean, I must say the the government's absolute failure to protect the safety of its citizens has led me to question other things. I mean, are they keeping their eye on the effect of the PTFEs and cookware? Or, you know, have they kept their eye on the possible effects of the 5G network that popped up like mushrooms during COVID? Or take your pick. I've seen them lie when they knew they were lying and they knew I knew they were lying. So, it's natural that there's going to be conjecture, but at this point, there's enough actual data that we can focus on that and perhaps put aside some of the stuff that we have to have to yeah. guess at a bit more. Absolutely. And now I'm going to play. This is the final question in that interview, which I think was just so profound. And it sort of goes to speak to what we've just been talking about in regards to what it is that we're fighting for, what it is that we need to protect. You are... A man of many talents and pursuits, as well as your legal work, you're a celebrated historian. Speaking in 2023, is the role and influence of liberal democracies in the world waning or growing in influence, do you think? I very much fear that it is waning. And I think that's going to be the pattern for quite a number of years to come. Uh, this is There are a number of factors, but the main one is a growing intolerance of of dissent, a growing intolerance of opinions that the speaker or actor doesn't share. Uh, I think that the social media uh, have played a large part in this by uh, accentuating dissent, by associating people with those who already agree with their point of view, and by producing instant outrage uh, of a kind that once took a much longer period of time to arise. 
And, and I think that these are wholly negative factors. Uh, I don't see that they're going to go away very quickly. Uh, so I rather fear that we are in for a period of growing uh, authoritarianism uh, and growing what we loosely call bullying mm. by one sector of our fellow citizens against another. Uh, I think that's a really sinister development, but that is what we are looking at at the moment. Are there things that our, our leaders, our governments and our society should be doing to reduce the impact of social media on those factors? I don't think you can reduce the impact of social media without engaging in precisely the same kind of censorship, which I deplore uh, when it comes from other directions. What we do need to do is to just get a bit more savvy uh, about how social media works and a bit more skeptical about the appearance of unanimous abuse, uh, which it tends to generate. A lot to think about. It is just, I look, I'm going to have a bit of hopium. I'm kind of hoping that we it won't be as long as as he fears, but it is to me that is a very important message to actually remind us that even though we sort of can get a few runs on the board, that this is a long game that we're in, and we can't celebrate those few runs. We've got to actually keep going, and we've got to keep preserving and protecting these values, these th this vision, the vision that man is inherently who he is, that what we need to do is we need to look at the evidence, we need to work on our structures, we need to work on the community, we need to make the compromises that we have. As you say, take the heat out of a situation, not be so reactive and actually look at what is at stake here in terms of society. And I know for me, that is making sure that I raise really well-rounded, respectful young men yep. to carry that on. I don't know yeah. that. And, and improve ourselves. As I said, you know, my current project is going around talking to my neighbours, getting their details, asking some of those questions. What do, we, what do we do if the power goes out? What do we do if some uh, water coming from the sea rushing down our cul-de-sac? Are we good to go? Have we all got fire? Have we got a uh, community where if someone's really feeling down, they can talk to people? It's, it's that bringing order to chaos. And that's that's what I'm, I think about when I talk about putting recycling into one side of prisons. And I like those symmetrical things. You know, if you've made disorder within society, you can atone for it for making by making order. I think one of the big things that we could all start working on is food production because we're going to have some uh, excess labour to soak up soon and we're going to have a shortage of food if we look at the trajectory in the more in the in the direction of equity and kindness it always mm. leads to starvation so we might as well get some spuds and corn and start using um, some land whether it's to generate feed for animals start reducing waste and get getting the government out from between us Mm, absolutely, because they have inserted themselves absolutely everywhere. Like a cancer. Mm -hmm. I do actually have a couple of little good news stories. One is we talked about uh, several weeks ago when we were talking about in terms of childlessness, and you brought up Jamie Lupton, who was the fiancé of Nick Mowbray, who's the Zuru Toys franchise. Mm. Uh, Kiwi toy entrepreneur and his fiancé, who announced last week they were expecting a miracle baby. 
Mm. So that is very um, very good news for them. And on that news, they have now bought a home because they had been spending a lot of time away from New Zealand. So they're now looking at spending more time here because she had lost a, a child. So that's very nice news for her. She, um, she, the- lost, she lost a – I mean, she's, she's re- yeah, really struggled. I mean, you know, we both know what, what that's like. But yeah, uh, there's something about having kids that, that really solves that that pain and somehow makes you forget it. And so, yeah, they can look forward to that. And if if they're like me, maybe, um, you know, they'll they'll suddenly find they go from one child to three uh, really quickly and they're sort of wondering what they ever worried about. So I hope yeah. that's the case for them. I, I hope so too. And the last one, uh, and I can't even remember which paper I chopped it out was, but mum wins case to kick out big baby adult sons. A 75-year-old Italian woman had the right to boot out her big baby adult sons, whom she accused of sponging off her for too long. A court has ruled. The mother has tried for years to evict her sons, aged 40 and 42, saying they have jobs and should be able to stand on their own two feet. She took the case to court in the city of Pavia in northern Italy and the judge has now ruled that she has every right to evict her sons. Uh, The judge has given the brothers until December 18 to leave the parental home. They'll probably get married and then she can make the wife's life a misery. (laughs) Indeed. Indeed. Like a mama. <laughs> An Italian girl worked for me. Said, "Ah, oh, yeah, no, I don't want to go to Italy. You know, uh, you know, we're having dinner. You know, my brother said, oh, I want a glass of water. I have to effing get up and get for him. Uh, it's, it's a nice uh, way to live, though. I remember when I was in Greece, seeing a family at the beach, and they were sort of having a glass of wine, and they were all together as an extended family. That's a natural way for humans to live, and that's probably another." Yeah, something Another that we, thing need, we to need to get back to. Reclaim and restore, absolutely. If you've got any comments or feedback for Marty and I, and actually I should check, uh, we do have a little bit of feedback. Woohoo! Uh, woo-hoo. This is in regards to uh, our clip on the media needing a new teat to suck along, which I think was a week or two ago. Uh, from Robin, a weaning is definitely overdue. The bias and revolting disrespect of journalism against the now incoming government from the majority of the mainstream media has been hideous. Against the odds in the people of New Zealand proved that they're not stupid and they still voted for change. We now have hope. Many of us switched off from the dreadful bias and the purposeful blindness of the media and sought our own truths from independent media sources like RCR. Thank you for your goodness and your courage. Thank you, Robin. And from Nick, it won't change. The new government, if there is one, will I have my doubts that they'll be the same as the old one. National will be the, about the same as Labour. We just need to nail the taxpayer more and blame Labour for the extra costs. We know how these globalist puppets work and Luxon will suck up to them even more in the name of growth, prosperity and peace. But what they really want us is to let's go Brandon. But you know what, I think that's where we just have to keep trying to hold those people to account. Yep, and meet, meeting them in person. And, and I mean, I'm more cynical even than that. I always worry that what we're seeing is we get one team in to basically wreck things run up a whole lot of debt, and now we've got the next team in to uh, maybe socialise the losses or, or ensure that the, the privatisation of profits. And that's going to come by opening the tap up to investment companies like BlackRock, who have got a big fund ready now to suck up these distressed assets. Mm. I mean, there's even some speculation that all the riots where the most full, mostly peaceful protests set cities on fire were a land grab like that. Another discussion for another day. So if you've got feedback for Marty or I, 2057 is the text number. Inbox at realitycheck.radio, of course, is the email. I will do it all again next week and we'll have results next week. So we'll be able to get a 
clearer lay of the land politically here in this country. Hope you have a good rest of week and uh, thank you very much again, my friend. Yeah, thanks for listening. Thanks for the work you do and have a great week, everybody. This is Counterculture with Marie Busky. Wednesdays at 10 a.m. on Reality Check Radio.